Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. We're recording this on March 3rd, 2017, and this is episode 22. Politicoast is a podcast that explores what's happening in British Columbia and across the country. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter where we're at Politicoast Pod. I'm Scott. And I'm Ian. Well, I'm Kelly Leach, and I'm running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. Well, before we get going this week, the big thing that exploded the internet was whatever the hell it was that Kelly Leach released last weekend, her eight and a half minute, not ramble, but essentially ramble of weird looks and long, awkward pauses and just standing up and then sitting down and then having the camera pan and then pan the other way. It's the sort of hypnotic call to defend her terrible policies. Just altogether weird. Did Tommy Wiseau get a game directing Canadian political videos? It just baffled everyone. And we saw a lot of people talk about it, so we're not going to go deeply into it. But it's going to go down in history as just one of those like infamous Canadian political <laughs> satires, like the pooping bird on Stefan Dion, or some obscure third-party candidate's like terrible YouTube video. The Heritage Minute that's going to be produced on this 20 years from now is going to be pretty funny. Well, let's jump into the first segment, dipping into the race. We now actually have a NDP leadership race. We have more than one candidate representing more than one idea. Peter Julian was the first to jump into the race. He's a local MP here in Vancouver. The following week, Charlie Angus jumped into the race. And just this past week, Quebec MP Guy Caron jumped in and... Every indication is that Nikki Ashton will jump into the leadership race again next week. She already has a nomination page running up on the NDP's main website and Facebook ads running for that. So I think the chances of her not entering the race are pretty low at this point. There's also a lot of expectation that Ontario member of the provincial parliament Jagmeet Singh will enter the race. And there's a campaign to draft some guy named Sid Ryan, who's a labor guy, who's a bit connected with the Jeremy Corbyn-style socialism, as it were. That's working out so great for the labor right now? Well, I don't think Ryan even has the profile of half a Corbyn here, so we probably won't have to spend much time on him. But the basics of the race, just as it's getting started, it's worth maybe delving a little into that. And it's a bit different than the conservative race because it's the NDP, so it's a bit cheaper. You only have to drop $30,000. You have to get 500 member signatures, and that includes 50 from each region. And the NDP defines five regions as Quebec, Atlantic, Canada, Ontario, BC, and the North, and the Prairies. Half of your signatures have to be from female-identifying people. A hundred of those signatures as well also have to come from equity-seeking groups. So visible minorities, indigenous people, LGBT people, or people living with a disability, which is the NDP's commitment to equality. I didn't actually know about this specific requirement until I saw it in the reporting today. And it's interesting. I know in BC and in a lot of the NDP provincial parties across the country, there's efforts to run 50% women candidates where they get the chance and also to really promote visible minorities or other I guess, equity-seeking groups. And that can be contentious in the party because the idea of quotas sometimes offends that shouldn't everyone just have an equal chance of getting in? And so I didn't actually expect it to be on the nomination side. 
I guess it doesn't usually become a problem because most candidates will probably get thousands. Yeah, it's not hard to round up 500 signatures. Yeah. yeah. And if you're just scraping the bare minimum, like you get 500 and you can't get these targets, I guess you have a problem. The NDP leadership race will conclude with a preferential ballot, just like the Conservatives, but it's not weighted by riding. It's just a one member, one vote. So BC is going to have a lot of influence in this because BC tends to have a lot of NDP members. The other thing to remember about the NDP is if you're a member of a provincial NDP, you are a member of the federal NDP, no matter what province you're in, which may mean there's more NDP members in Alberta now than there potentially ever has been. The first round of voting is in October, and rather than run through all of the ranked ballots instantly, like you can do... Or like, well, like the Conservatives are doing. They're doing a round per week. So the first week of October, we find out who won the first ballot, but then if you voted online, you can go back and change that. If you vote by mail, your votes are locked in. But this means after the first round of voting, there'll be an announcement of oh, so-and-so won the first round of voting, so-and-so is knocked off. They let each candidate speak and drop out if they want at that point. And then you could say, oh, I'm dropping out, but I'm throwing all my votes to candidate number two. It's an anyone but, which makes it a little more interesting. I, I guess I can't really see anyone wanting to drop out at that point. You've already put so much effort in, you might as well ride it to the end. Well, I guess the issue would be, like in a delegated convention, where you get through the first round of voting and you're second last and you have no clear path to victory, one thing you can do is try to curry some favor with whoever you think should win. And that's where you try to send your delegates. In a one-member-one-vote system, it's much harder to send your voters because they're a whole bunch of individual-minded, and in the NDP, they're very individually-minded at times, rank-and-file members who may have even sent in their ballots ahead of time. The GOTV on this is a lot harder than a delegated convention for just that reason. Yeah, the candidates are definitely going to be wanting everyone to submit paper ballots because then they can't change their vote. I'm probably, if I join and vote, which I most likely will, do this online just so I have the option to change my vote. And it also gives the NDP chances for multiple speeches and to make October the interesting month of the NDP leadership race. Now, if you do want to vote, uh, you have to become a member by August 17th. Um, like most parties, there's a membership cutoff well in advance of the actual vote. Between now and voting, there are going to be seven uh, officially scheduled debates. First one coming up is March 12th in Ottawa, followed by Montreal, Sudbury, Halifax, Saskatoon, Victoria, and finally Toronto on the 17th of September, which is a quote-unquote, candidate showcase. That's just their last time to say, hi, my name is... You would think by that point they have introduced themselves, but I guess concluding your series of debates with a introduction is a alternate way to do it. I guess maybe it's a final pitch to yeah. voters. Uh, what's interesting there is where they aren't doing their debates, not only are they skipping over Alberta, which is the only place where there is actually an NDP government right now, they're also skipping Vancouver, and since it's a one-member, one-vote, you think you'd want to target the biggest cities for this sort of thing to really drive up those membership numbers. Yeah, there'll undoubtedly be campaign stops here in Vancouver, but I'm not just personally offended because <laughs> I could go to Victoria, but it's Victoria is much smaller than Vancouver, and 
despite it being the provincial capital, it's still more remote. It's more difficult to get to. So it's weird for sure. I don't know who had the control over that decision. They're also not going to Manitoba yet. And Manitoba was where the second most recent NDP government was, I believe. So it's maybe trying to avoid controversy. At least that's what they've sort of said it's not about. But after the sort of leap manifesto debates and the tension with the Notley NDP government and some of the other parts of the NDP, maybe it's a safer bet avoiding the whole province and just like patting themselves on the back for several months, which does not make for a fun leadership race. Yeah, and it does kind of really highlight those divisions there, and they are that is going to come up for sure. As you were saying, there could be a lot more NDP members now in Alberta, and is it giving them the uh, cold short shoulder the best approach? Well, with the conservative leadership race, we saw or we've seen a number of officially sanctioned debates, but then there's been multiple, like dozens of other local debates some of which feature all the candidates, some of which just get half of them. But those are the ones that we'll undoubtedly see in Vancouver and Alberta. And at a certain point, they almost become de facto official debates. If you get the you know three front runners, then if you're not at that debate, you're not really in the race kind of thing. So I'm sure we'll see a debate here in Vancouver. I'm sure we'll see debates in Calgary and Edmonton. They might not be official party debates, but maybe they're put on by local EDAs or similar. Well, as with any NDP leadership race, when candidates jump in, they have to promise the world, sort of, the revolution has to come and people have to know it. Peter Julian, his big announcement was that he would provide free tuition, and we talked about that briefly in a previous quick take. Guy Caron, who announced this past week, promised basic income for Canadians. And when Charlie Angus launched, I did actually try to look a little bit at what he announced, and there were the usual platitudes and talk. But I, as far as I can tell for now, he's just running on like bring punk rock back, which I'm kind of on board with. It's a good time for punk. And I'm sure he'll have more coming. But for now, it's kind of the, we need to talk more about reconciliation, the environment and the economy, but he hasn't said how. But perhaps we could look a bit more at basic income just as it seems to be the thing in vogue right now. The BC Green Party's talking about it. And that's getting Andrew Weaver some attention. And a lot of people seem to latch on to Guy Caron's announcement on that. And that sort of propelled him from, there's not tiers of the NDP leadership race, but the sort of, who's that guy? To, oh, he's he said something interesting and people are paying attention. Whereas I don't think his name was initially tossed around in the who will win. So what is basic income? Well, the short version is it's a check that everyone gets from the government that covers a minimum level of income. A couple ways to structure it. You can go with the everybody gets a check no matter what, or everybody gets a check and there's going to be some clawback or tats, or it's a taxable benefit. Or you can do a much more means test, like guaranteed minimum income structure, where it's just a top up to whatever that threshold is. Or, or maybe there's a clawback on top of that because you don't want to have such a harsh cutoff because pretty major disincentives in that uh, structure right there. So yeah, there's been a bunch of different models on which it can work. There's the negative income tax that uh, Milton Friedman proposed. So there's a, a lot of different ways you can structure it. I don't think Gcron has actually come out with a favored model. Not as far as I've looked into. As you're saying, basic income's got several different models with that 
simple goal of eliminating poverty, essentially. The one thing it generally always does is takes a lot of different existing programs of welfare and social supports and dumps them all into a lump sum check that just everyone or at least everyone who needs it gets so that the poverty line is basically met by everyone. This appeals to people on the sort of economic right because it simplifies bureaucracy. You just have one check department that either issues everyone a check, which is really simple, or gives people money so that they meet that basic line. Or as they start to earn more money, that goes down. Yeah, there's also the, um, from the more libertarian side, it's just the least intrusive way to structure it. Not only do you not have the big bureaucracy there, it's also nobody's looking over your shoulder and what you spend it on. It's a cash benefit rather than an in-kind transfer. And the sort of thing's generally favored by economists just because it provides more choice. But there's also pretty libertarian argument to that too and that's generally where you see that side kind of embrace it a little more why you got you know milton friedman uh who's hardly a pinto liberal commie give everyone free money type of guy but that's where he kind of came at it from is the if we're going to try and avoid you know that level of poverty this is probably the simplest least intrusive way to do it and it definitely also appeals to the sort of equality and treat everyone fairly even socialist aspects of the left. So there's no confusion about why the left generally supports it. I think there's at least hesitancy among some on the sort of progressive left spectrum, because anytime you talk about consolidating or getting rid of a bunch of government programs and saying, oh, we'll just replace it with this magic bullet, people are skeptical because people have spent a lot of political capital developing and investing in the social safety net we have. So if you talk about rolling back or just eliminating entire aspects of the system, there's worry that people get left behind. Of course, the other big fear is that it will just cost a lot. Like, how can you afford to give 35 million Canadians $20,000 a year? Where's that money going to come from? Or even if you're only giving 10 million Canadians that much money, it still sounds like it'll cost a lot. Economists are, I think, a bit more optimistic about this. And once you crunch the numbers, it might require some higher taxes at higher incomes as a way to sort of balance it off. I haven't seen the best accounting, but as far as I can tell, it's not as pie in the sky as the fear mongers like to pretend. Yeah, there's a lot of estimates out there. I've kind of seen the range from, say, $150 billion to $600, billion, $800 billion, kind of nationally. And... Even that smaller number, that's quite a lot of money. The federal budget's roughly $300 billion, give or take 10 or so. So you're looking at minimum, you're half the federal budget would be needed on this program. Then there becomes the question of where does that money come from, even at the low end. It's going to be very hard to eliminate a half the government a bureaucracy just to save on those social programs and... Now, a lot of the social programs are done at the provincial level, so it's a little less fuzzy there, but it still becomes a very significant outlay, even at the slower end. And there's the secondary effects you have to consider, too, and that's where it gets even more complicated. One of the hopes of this sort of argument and this basic income argument is that giving people money and and essentially eliminating poverty reduces a lot of other social costs. So when one of the now more famous experiments Canada did, which was in the 1970s under Pierre Trudeau, 
was to partner with the then NDP government in Manitoba to launch the Mincom experiment in Dauphin. And they ran that for a few years until the federal government changed to a conservative government and the provincial government changed to a conservative government, and they both shuttered the experiment and threw all the files in a warehouse. And it was only in the 90, late 90s, or even more recently than that, that they started going through that data. And what they found is the program had a lot of positive benefits that people maybe didn't predict. Healthcare costs went down because people would go to the doctor more preventatively. Education rates went up. People chose to work. So they found one of the big fears is that giving people money disincentivizes work and then people won't want to go to their shitty job because the only reason you go to your shitty job is because you get money for it. But what they found with this in Dauphin is people still worked and they tried to better themselves. So if they had a shitty job, they might take more time off of it to improve their education and maybe get a better job in the end that was more fulfilling. Maybe the fear is that then no one's going to be a janitor because everyone's going to go back to school or do something else. And that's why these pilot projects are so interesting. Now there's ones going on in Ontario, PEI, and Finland. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff that comes out of there. But there's also been some people critical of drawing too broad a conclusion from these studies. Most notably, they're not self-funded. Like You're not taking that money out of the local economy through taxes. So you can't get a good understanding of how the increased marginal tax rates are going to bear with the basic income and how that's going to shift uh, work incentives. They're also a temporary measure too, which... It makes it a great thing to say improve human cap, you know, improve your human capital and whatnot by going back to school. If it's you know a four-year program where they're given this uh, basic income out, but if it's going to be a long-term thing, do those same incentives still work that same way? Is there quite as much emphasis on improving uh, it? And you know, are you necessarily going to quit your job if you know it's going to be a temporary thing? Because four years of unemployment has some negative effects further down the line if that basic income gets cut off in the uh, pilot program ends. So there's a lot of areas where the these pilots programs can be interesting, but I'm hesitant to draw too broad a conclusion from there. Sure. Public policy experiments are always going to be very limited, and you can do randomization and some control trials, which are interesting, but ultimately there are so many other co-founding factors at play you can't really figure out if it works or not until you just do it to a country and see. The other big interesting advocates for basic income these days are all the sort of Silicon Valley tech nerds who perhaps are like cynically worried that as they fully automate the world in their techno-utopia, that it's going to essentially make half the jobs go away. And perhaps they're just cynically really worried about a plebeian revolt of the unemployed who can no longer drive cabs or trucks or do basic jobs that are now all done by robots. And so they're saying, well, let's start to work towards a basic income or shorter work weeks. So there is still enough work to go around, or even if there isn't, everyone has money and then everyone's okay and content and not going to be mad at us because we stole their jobs, right? Because it is robots that seal jobs, not foreigners. The automation issue is definitely an interesting one, and that's another I'm a little more skeptical of, because we've seen this plenty of times in history with some, you know, newfangled technology like the steam engine and industrialization is going to put everyone out of work, or 
And that's kind of the open question here is, is this time different? Historically, people adapt, the economy changes. There's no buggy web makers anymore, but there are plenty of automakers now, although some of them are losing out to robots. But the question is, is automation going to mean fewer jobs or just different jobs? And that's kind of the big thing up in the air. Just There's no lump of labor uh, that's just a set amount in the economy. It's always going to be changing depending on what the demand and the supply is and all that stuff. And if so much labor is done by one thing, is that necessarily going to reduce other labor or is that just going to shift it elsewhere? And that's kind of the big question now. And there's a lot of debate going on over that. And a lot of smart people are on both sides of it. And I don't think we're anywhere near a final answer on it or even getting close to reaching a conclusion. Well, getting back to the segment and the NDP leadership race, the other idea I think everyone's kind of waiting for it to come up or to rear its head is the Leap Manifesto. And this is the document, the set of principles released by a number of prominent activists and authors and celebrities back in September 2015. It didn't get a huge amount of attention during the election when it was released, but it uh, kind of came to notoriety a little later during the NDP's post-election convention, where there was a motion adopted to study the Leap Manifesto and then, after, I believe, a year's time, come back and vote on whether or not the NDP should officially adopt it. And it's been more than a little contentious. Yeah, the document itself really sets out sort of 15 ambitions, leaps forward, as it were. And these are just traditional lefty kind of issues, but they talk about you know, improving indigenous rights, expanding environmental protections, and even promoting democracy. Basic income is actually in there as well, and a whole bunch of other things. But people always forget that because everyone really likes to get hung up on the specific phrase about no new infrastructure projects that lock us into increased extraction. And this ambitious goal we should set of getting 100% renewable energy by 2050. With this is largely interpreted as, and is even spoken of as by the proponents of the LEAP, is no new pipelines, no new oil extraction. It doesn't mean shut the oil sands down today, but sort of recognizing that with climate change, and if we're going to take all these things seriously, we need to actually figure out what our path is to turning the taps off, at least in terms of oil and gas for electrical generation. That's probably the most favorable thing I'd say about it. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the manifesto. It does a good job in identifying kind of the key problem that, yeah, there's a fair bit of carbon pollution out there and that's having some negative effects and we really need to get serious about it. But then it kind of goes off into a tangent on a whole other bunch of unrelated issues. You know, it talks about defense spending, local agriculture, basic income, and... Some of those may be good ideas. Some of them are pretty terrible ideas in there. It's kind of a collection of basically every left-of-center idea that's been thrown around the last 20 years in a green uh, suit. Well, I think it's wrong to look at it, and where it's always been positioned is as this environmental message. And I don't think that's what the author's actually ever intended. That's just what it gets picked up most as. It's definitely what I've seen. And the times I've argued about it, I've always seen it argued that opposing the Leap Manifest is opposing dealing with climate change, where it's really a small part of the overall platform in there. Yeah, because within the NDP, the biggest contention is over this resource extraction, because you have the Alberta NDP that 
isn't saying let's open every possible pipeline, but we need some, we need a couple more pipelines at least and trying to take that, well, the leap goes too far. And at some times, Rachel Notley's just been outright hostile to it because no pipelines means no Alberta oil business at this point. So it creates that tension within the NDP and it's all focused around resources and environment. I think it's also just gotten such a damaged brand as an idea because there's something in there everyone can hate that That now talking about it is just a big mess and a quagmire. Yeah, and that I think is probably where it's fallen down, especially on the environmental side, is you have given everybody something to hate about it, basically, except, you know, maybe the core authors. And and that's, I think, the bigger problem here is that every additional thing you throw in there that isn't related to dealing with carbon pollution, you've just made the circle of potential supporters smaller. And there's so many in here that it just... um, it's really hard to build a good coalition around. Like, there's stuff such about local farming, which is actually pretty terrible environmentally is to try and source everything locally. The majority of energy use and carbon emissions come from actually growing the food itself rather than transporting it. Typically, it's only around 10 to 15 percent. Depends a bit on the food. But growing food in an optimized climate and literally shipping it across the globe is more effective than trying to grow the same food locally. And there's also stuff about high-speed rail, which isn't practical outside of a few limited pockets in Canada. In a way, I think the goal was to try to look at climate change and these issues from a broader brush. And it's a sort of emphasis that tackling climate change isn't going to just be a carbon tax from the point of view of the authors. The conservative point of view, the Michael Chong point of view, can be climate change can be dealt with through a carbon tax and we can just price it and then that'll trickle down and solve everything. This is the sort of left wing, like, we got to fuck with everything. And so we everything, got, we needs look a, at, everything needs a regulation. Yeah, we need to look at transportation. We need to look at indigenous rights because when First Nations tell us that building this dam or that this pipeline will affect their sovereignty, it's connected. But it's tying all of these disparate things and talking about poverty as a way to say how can we bring people out of poverty without just giving them a bunch of cars and suvs that will pollute and so that's where public transit comes in and it is a holistic view i think that it's not going to win over the conservative party candidate supporters and that's never where it was targeted but there's like i said there's lots of things to that anyone can find to dislike in there but for the NDP, there are lots of things they can find to like. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it does well with kind of that core downtown NDP voter. I think it's going to be a little less popular for kind of the rural portion of the party. And at least as far as I look at it, I find the holistic view a lot more convincing if it was a coherent holistic package. But we have stuff such as if you wouldn't want it in your backyard, it doesn't belong in anyone's backyard, which is a recipe for locking in our current infrastructure rather than trying to build anything new that helps mitigate it when you have stuff like the local farming thing i brought up there's just so many things that contradict each other and don't form that broader coherent approach to it which i think it just shows the flaw of that kind of very top-down approach where if you have to you know have kind of one point one decision making point trying to decide how to run everything you get into a lot of problems we're trying to bring such a complicated system 
into a line with where you want it to go. And that's one of the reasons I tend to be a little more favorable to the kind of carbon price, just as long as it's, you know, aggressive enough. This is also a proposal by people who are mostly nonpartisans, or at least not members of the NDP, not members of the... They've been involved in some way at different times, but Mm -hmm. it was always pitched from the start as a sort of nonpartisan approach that they were looking for anyone who could take it up. Definitely people like Abby Lewis have connections to the NDP, but the sort of goal of it was to find any party to take it on. They obviously identified the NDP as being closest, but the NDP itself didn't generate the idea and so has always been a bit skeptical of it. And following the 2016 convention and the fiasco and just disaster of a media and press strategy around that, I would almost be willing to bet money that none of the leadership candidates right now are going to say the words Leap Manifesto if they can avoid it. So we have a few candidates in the NDP leadership race. We have no good polling to know who's in the lead who's not it's really anyone's game right now and it'll be interesting to see who jumps in we we didn't talk about uh nikki ashton or jade meet singh beyond a very brief mention and i'm sure we'll be discussing them a little more if or almost certainly when they decide to throw their hat into the ring moving on to segment two liberal but not too liberal justin trudeau came to town this week he visited victoria and vancouver yesterday and today respectively Among the issues he discussed was the opioid crisis and legalizing marijuana. said the current laws are, you know, still don't apply to marijuana, to legalization. Which is hilarious for him to say in BC, where we're totally disrespecting all of the laws and have been for, I mean, realistically, 20, 30 years when the cops just don't care if you smoke a joint. But now you have marijuana dispensaries on every corner and... They're not really legal under the federal medicinal marijuana scheme. And this actually came up during the last federal election when Health Canada started making noises, oddly, that it would direct the RCMP to investigate some of these shops, which is sort of outside its jurisdiction, given police investigations are a bit more of a provincial matter. So there's been a lot of, I think, people expecting Trudeau since he said, we're going to legalize marijuana this year, and he reiterated that this week, to maybe soften up the federal government's approach, not to change the law by fiat, but essentially say, look, the laws are changing, and we understand that, and in this sort of gray period, let's be a little more liberal, but now it's the laws are still in effect. Well, I think if he wanted to do that, he would have just decriminalized it day one while we sort out the legalization issue and that's the thing that's always struck me as a little odd that we that didn't actually happen well and that's something tom Mulcair jumped on him on like day two in parliament just saying look people are in some parts of canada are still being arrested for possession and for trafficking like passing a joint is technically trafficking in canada and that gets you a serious conviction and under some of the previous mandatory minimums that <laughs> is a big problem when it becomes especially a highly racialized and discriminatory kind of application. So the law is still in effect, except in provinces where they're not enforcing it, like this one. And he also went on to say, in reference to the opioid crisis, that he's not going to be legalizing any other drugs. One of the ways a lot of advocates for harm reduction want to see 
the opioid crisis reduced and to see deaths from fentanyl reduced is to see heroin treatment facilities opened, sort of like Vancouver's Insight, but for heroin. This puts a lot of drug abolitionists on edge because they don't like the idea of people being essentially given government license to take heroin. But it's one of those models where if you bring people into a facility like Insight and have a supervised drug use, you can actually make sure that they, number one, don't overdose, and number two, can access detox facilities if that's what they start to come around to. And they generally do because people don't actually like being addicted to drugs. And so Trudeau didn't really provide any commitment to give any more funding to some of these programs. And these heroin treatment programs have been recommended by some BC government health officials. So it's not sort of radical Portuguese, let's decriminalize everything and just go after the drug gangs. Trudeau did sort of talk about how there's no one size fits all solution to the opioid crisis. And he has reintroduced harm reduction into some of the government policies. He is looking at expanding access into naloxone, which is one of the drugs I believe the first responders tend to use to save someone's life when they're overdosing. So these are good steps, but that sort of broader evidence-based harm reduction model that the BC government is actually really on board with, and that's something I really respect the BC Liberals for, is really sticking with this. It's not really there at the federal government level. They're sort of sympathetic to it, but they probably know that a lot of other parts of suburban Canada are a bit more skeptical of this because they hear heroin treatment program and they think it's free drugs for addicts. So this visit also comes on the back of Trudeau's overall poll numbers starting to sag nationally, but particularly in BC. Maybe not a lot, but some people in this province are a bit bitten by the electoral reform flip-flop, and a lot of the voter base of the Trudeau Liberals feel betrayed by the pipeline approval. Which seems odd, because it's about the least surprising thing that happened, considering more or less exactly what he campaigned on was, we're going to complete the process, but we're probably going to approve a bunch of these pipelines as part of our broader energy plan that involves some resource development and some climate mitigation. Although he did talk about the National Energy Board approval process as deeply flawed, and he promised to reform that. But then he did just sort of tweak it it minimally and then accept its results. So maybe that's where some of the anger is coming from. I I mean, a bigger chunk of it is definitely just the never-pipeline crowd. And the focusing, but I think, a little more on tone than substance. I think the image that was cultivated around him, whether or not he intentionally did it himself, was much more of the kind of climate warrior than than the actual platform put forward really had in it. He did a run with Canadian Forces members in Esquimalt with Harjit Sajan as well yesterday, and he had a nice photo op with the Premier of BC today. I think also this week, the Liberals released a whole bunch of shirtless Justin photos as well, but I try to avoid that level of vanity news as much as I can. But overall, in light of sort of sagging poll numbers, is this going to do anything for him? It doesn't hurt him, but I don't see it helping him either. It just seems to be more or less the same. There's no obvious flashpoint where it really set him back on this, but at the same time, I, he didn't shore up any of his weaknesses either. Yeah, it felt... Almost like a blip, like 
Trudeau's in town, but you could have missed it if you blinked. When six months ago, it might have been a big deal. Now it's kind of just, oh, he didn't actually announce anything, and it's it's almost like a slow decline of interest in him, as he's not really making any new commitments, he's still coasting on the promises he made during the election, but people, I think, are still waiting for those promises to be fulfilled. And so the question is just, how much more are people going to put up with? With the re-election campaign well underway at this point, Trudeau put out the sort of standard publicity photos with Premier Clark talking about working together to create more well-paying jobs for the middle class in BC. Essentially, all of the buzzwords every politician these days loves. Do you think this appearance together, I mean, it, it is a sort of stock appearance, but could it do anything to boost Clark or hurt Trudeau or vice versa? Kind of like for the rest of the trip, it just doesn't seem to change things one way or the other. I can't see anyone who was ambivalent about Clark to begin with suddenly being swayed by a prime minister sitting down with a premier. Nor do I really see the opposite happening where somehow Clark's presence there hurts Trudeau. It just more or less seems to be that very much a stock photo. And in fact, it would be odder if it didn't happen and there wasn't this press photo and everything that not meeting with the premier when you're in the provincial capital, if anything, sends a much stronger signal and highlights something askew where this was business as usual. I think Trudeau and Clark do have a fairly positive relationship. They both have talked about the climate change plans and BC has a carbon tax They did just negotiate a fairly substantial health accord between the two governments. And so I get the sense they're on positive relationships. It's not that they're endorsing each other's platforms, but just because they're both liberals in name doesn't mean their voters are the same. Many BC liberal voters are federal conservative voters. Many BC NDP voters are actually federal liberal voters, just the way the spectrum sort of align. And so there is... I think there is a possibility for some political risks for any politician in those things. Obviously, leaders of governments do best when they get along with each other, unless it's Trump, and then you could pretty much burn that bridge. Yes, but I just don't see it hurting Clark at all. The part of the BC liberal base that doesn't like Trudeau, where are they going to go? The alternatives, the BC conservatives and you know, we saw what a disaster they were last week. They're still pulling at 10%. Well, we'll see how quickly that changes when the rent drops and people actually have to start seriously considering who they're voting for. But there just isn't a viable alternative right now. And, you know, they're not going to be voting NDP. We know that much. So I I just don't see it uh, hurting one way or the other. And to close off our show, just a few quick takes. First today, another twist On the ongoing story that is the Vancouver School Board's firing, the appointed trustee has released the executive summary of Rosalind Goldner's report into bullying at the Vancouver School Board. Goldner was the lawyer who was hired as the external reviewer to look into whatever happened at the school board and why a number of senior administrators went on sick leave amid sort of bullying concerns that were expressed through the president of the superintendent's association. The report itself wasn't released, just the executive summary. And in that, it talks about a sort of ambient bullying that was happening between the partisan trustees, because here in Vancouver, we have 
political parties at the municipal level. So there were Vision Vancouver trustees, Green trustees, and nonpartisan association trustees. And apparently the partisan composition created this hostile bullying culture that permeated down to the senior staff. The summary also suggests that there is credible evidence that trustees, and it doesn't name who, quote, threw staff under the bus in trying to deal with school closures and other fiscal constraints put on them by the province. So it's all very vague. And the appointed trustee who was put in place after the school board was fired said they can release the full report in a redacted form if someone FOIs it, which is an odd, like, step away from actually doing anything. The Vision Vancouver trustees who are fired sort of dismiss the report as they've dismissed all of the bullying accusations. The NPA ex-trustee continues to express concerns and supports it. This report mirrors the findings of a WorkSafe BC report, as far as I know, it still leaves a sort of cloak and dagger feeling around this whole thing. Like no one really knows what's going on. And there's just so much partisanship all the way down that it's not clear if that's driving it or if these people, and I've met some of these trustees, are actually terrible. I don't know. Bank of Canada Deputy Governor Timothy Lane made some news this week by making a few comments on a policy area that's usually outside the purview of our central bankers, weighing in on the climate file and what to do about it. Uh, Specifically cited research that suggests that the Canadian economy could be facing 21 to $43 billion in damages a year by 2050, and reiterated the need for carbon pricing as a very effective means of dealing with it, citing our own province of British Columbia's successful carbon tax as a way that reduces carbon output. Well, I don't think this is particularly controversial among uh, economists or academics in general. It's more, I think, noteworthy just the fact that central bankers usually avoid policy questions unless it has a very direct link to the economy. It's not so surprising for me. I know a lot of Previous Bank of Canada governors like Mark Carney have sort of unspoken connections to the Liberal Party and sort of centrist views that aren't so extreme on either end. And so the idea that they accept that climate change is happening, see that there are going to be economic costs to it, and because their bankers are looking at market-based solutions to it, all sort of fits a nice mold. Coming from the Bank of Canada does add a layer of interest to it. But in terms of ensuring the long-term fiscal health of the country, I think it's absolutely vital that the Bank of Canada speak up on this if they think this is something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, it absolutely needs to be addressed. It's just quite interesting, I find, that a position that's very non-political has weighed in a little more on the policy implications of what's a file that hasn't generally been considered an economic one. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if this is a trend or a one-off. Maybe he's just bought into the Leap Manifesto and he's (laughs) looking for radical changes. Moving from people who are very good with money to people who apparently have money to burn, Kevin O'Leary decided to miss the Edmonton Conservative Party of Canada official leadership debate this week. A lot of places reported on that, but one of the interesting little facts in there was that by missing the official debate, he faces a $10,000 fine from the party that's going to come out of his 
donation base. So it's now a question of how many of his donors actually care that he's spending $10,000 just to not go to a debate when he was in the same city. It really does speak to the kind of lack of respect towards his uh, base and supporters there. I know I'd be pretty annoyed if a candidate I donated money to decided to burn it by not showing up to a debate. He did get to that debate, though, via a private jet, something he's been using to get around the country, which is not just not standard practice in Canadian politics, but somewhat restricted because you have to account for your flights in your campaign expenses. You're supposed to account for it in your campaign expenses. He was only charging... Uh, a regular fare for the, basically what the a commercial airline ticket on the same route would cost, but you're supposed to charge for the full cost of the flight. And so he's essentially discounting and maybe applying a personal donation, as it were, to the cost of the rest of this flight, which then breaks campaign finance rules, as you can't donate massive amounts of money or services to politicians in this country. Yes, uh, on the financial forms, there is a section for them for services or advantages rendered that where you have to account for the monetary value of them. Well, there's nothing that stops him from it, spending campaign contributions on it. It's There's a $5 million cap, and he's probably not even going to raise that much money. So it just goes to show how Mr. Wonderful isn't doing so great with handling his money very well. And seems to be blowing it on missing debates and flying around much more expensively than he needs to be. If he can pull this all off in a Donald Trump way of just ignoring the day-to-day bitterness and people are just trying to take him down, he has a chance, I think, to move beyond this, at least among his base. Obviously, he's not going to win your vote, but he's not ever going to win your vote. The real question is, how many votes is he going to win when Elections Canada's uh, knocking at his door over his financial irregularities? In the latest installment of Metro Vancouver's ever-present transportation woes, the mayor of North Vancouver suggesting that TransLink, the local transit authority, conduct a study on building a third fits link between the city and the North Shore, specifically highlighted a possible SkyTrain tunnel from Waterfront to Lonsdale. For our non-Vancouver listeners, that's basically our rapid transit subway slash elevated rail system. So this would replace the existing ferry, the C-Bus service, that runs between those two ports every 15 minutes with a rapid train that would go every two minutes. And... Obviously, this won't be popular with the big mansions in West Van, where everyone just drives downtown anyway, but there is a lot of gridlock getting from North Van to downtown because there's just a three-lane bridge on one side and much further east, a six-lane bridge. But the challenge here is with any deep tunnel, and the Burrard Inlet is actually fairly deep water crossing. Yeah, it's one of the reasons it makes a great port, but it does present a challenge to tunnel across, and there's been... Several proposals. At one point during the late 1960s, early 1970s, there's actually a proposal to run th- freeways through downtown Vancouver and under the Burrard Inlet on a third crossing. In this case, the mayor's looking at a transit system rather than expansion, rather than road expansion, likening to road expansion to uh, 
buying new pants and loosening your belt to deal with obesity, which he raised a good point on in that building rows just creates induced demand, which makes more traffic, and you're basically right back where you started from. So as far as proposed third crossings, this is a fairly good one. Now, there's obviously be some challenges in terms of crossing the harbor. Uh, if you're going to build a tunnel similar to, say, the Massey Tunnel, which is just sections that are floated into place more or less rest along the bottom that presents some challenges both in terms of the topography as well as dealing with a potential complications from shipping alternatively you have to dig quite a ways down and boring tunnels raises a lot of risk too because the ground conditions can be very hard to know ahead of time so there's a lot of variability in costs and either way that's not going to be cheap you'd be looking at probably a billion to two billion dollars just ballparking this one? Well, despite all the cold water you're dumping all over this idea, I think it is worth floating out there just to see if it will sink or swim. I quite like the idea, and it's eventually, I think, going to need to happen that we're going to put a rapid transit connection to the North Shore. And I'm not sure if replacing the sea bus rather than supplementing it's the best idea, but I quite like the idea of extending the SkyTrain system into the North Shore, or possibly even... Um, add an additional right-of-ways under there for, say, a bus rapid transit system, which is significantly easier to roll out. It might be cheaper in the long run to incorporate into the single tunnel. Well, and I don't have the story at hand, but I did read this last week that BC Transit's also starting to look at a Vancouver to Squamish to Whistler to Pemberton bus route. And it's not clear if the numbers will be there, but that would reduce some of the traffic in theory along the sea to sky. It wouldn't be as fast as driving to Whistler, which you can do in an hour and a half. And this is saying it would take you two hours just to get to Squamish. So I guess there would be a lot of stops along the way. Yeah, you but, need to do stops in Lions Bay and Fury Creek. But there are ideas that are worth testing and seeing if there's the capacity to support it. Yeah, I think we both agree it's a decent idea. It's just not likely to come to fruition anytime soon because we're still trying to find money to build that lineup down Broadway, despite being on the local transit wish list for, what, the last 30 years? And one of the densest areas of Western Canada. Yeah, and, and in fact, the it's the busiest bus route in North America, and we still can't seem to scrounge up a couple billion dollars to do it, despite all this new uh, infrastructure money being floated around in the last budget. Well, Main Street Research this week released a poll on BC politics. Last week, we talked about one that had the Liberals and the NDP about tied at 27%. Main Street this week reported that support for the NDP is at 30%, while the Liberals at 25%. Those two polls are within statistical significance of one another, but they paint a very different picture, one of a tied race and one of the NDP with somewhat of a lead. It's hard to know which numbers are correct, or if in the last week there was a couple point shift like that. The Greens and Conservatives are both tied around 10 or 11%, and there's 24% of the province is still undecided. What was interesting in this poll is they also looked at a couple policy issues that have been talked about recently. The BC Liberals talked about a path towards eliminating MSP, but oddly, 38% of British Columbians oppose that idea, while 36% support it. And there are very few times that when you say, hey, we'd get rid of this tax that you find people divided on it, I think. It does seem a little odd to me. Just Personally, I've never met anybody who likes the MSP. There 
either against it or just indifferent to it, which, I mean, my sample may be stewed, but I'm just having a hard time seeing who would be the people who would be opposed to strapping MSP. Maybe 38% of British Columbians think MSP is just our healthcare system. On other policy fronts, on the foreign buyer's tax that was meant to try to reduce property speculation in Vancouver from people from other countries, 57% thinks it had no effect. 22% aren't sure if it's had any effect. So that's an overwhelming eh, response. 18% do think it actually helped affordability. And interestingly, 3% of people think it just hurt affordability. Finally, on the idea of having a universal childcare program, which is something the NDP has put forward in their platform, 46% are in support of it and 29% are opposed. Well, another quarter just aren't sure, probably waiting for the question of how much will it cost, which is pretty good news for the NDP in that people are interested in these ideas. I think the NDP's run on childcare programs a lot in the past, and they probably get this level of support, but it's not the vote-swinging issue for a lot of people. Other than, I think, families with young children, it's much more of a, yeah, it might be a good idea, but, you know, the broader economy or whatever the big scandal is, is more important. And it's one of those issues where it supports, you know, a mile wide and a foot deep, so to speak, outside of the core constituency that the policy really caters to. And finally, the endorsements and attacks are starting to fly in the upcoming BC election. BC Federation of Labour put an attack ad against the Liberals while the Ironworkers Union endorsed them. The BC Fed attack ad was kind of cute. It was a video game animation of Christy Clark having to like do photo ops to get bonus points while ignoring families and crumbling schools. But that's just kind of what you expect the big labor organization to sort of do in the lead up to an election. So it's not really that newsworthy. The interesting thing was the iron workers saying the BC liberals are the party with the jobs plan that will keep our people working. Labor has a long history of being deeply affiliated with the NDP in so much as many arms of the NDP still have guaranteed votes for labor organizations So this is a pretty big coup for the Liberals and blow against the NDP at this point. But endorsements to me are always this kind of thing that doesn't really matter. They're useful for drumming up positive media attention. But in terms of how much they actually swing votes, it's probably not particularly effective. And while the NDP does have that past, it's hardly a new phenomenon where the NDP starts to lose that connection to their labor roots. A couple election cycles back at the national level, it was a pretty big deal when the uh, United Auto Workers Union, I believe, uh, endorsed the Liberal Party instead of the NDP. And goes to once again highlight that split that we have discussed several times in the past, where the NDP's kind of fracturing a bit between their blue-collar labor side and the more white-collar urban progressive, for lack of a better term. And a lot of the projects that specifically cited by the Ironworkers Union, uh, I believe Site C, LNG, and the Massey Tunnel replacement bridge, are all the sort of things that the union likes because that means more jobs for their members, but kind of the more downtown, urbanite, NDP, progressive sort 
these aren't pro jets that they're particularly fond of, and the NDP uh, themselves haven't really endorsed. And well, you know, the NDP may be able to shore up it with some, say, more transit infrastructure pledges. It's at this stage, they definitely haven't come out as strongly in favor of those sorts of projects that the union who will be employed do and them like. And it's not surprising that different unions will take different partisan positions because unions are many political parties themselves, essentially. The leadership are elected from the base. And you can easily see a union go from a radical left leader to a center left leader. You very rarely will see a union swing to a right wing leader, but they can vote for whoever they think will best represent them. And because they're not officially party tied, you can have people move around or you can have your voters go for different candidates who they wouldn't traditionally vote for if they had a political tag attached to them. The last 16 years of the Liberal government, you know, the construction industry has done fairly well. Uh, so it's no surprise that they're a little more enthusiastic than, say, you know, public sector unions, which have had a much more love-hate relationship with the uh, provincial government. Not much love there. Mostly hate. And that has been Politos. Find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes at politos.ca. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PolitosPod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. And if you have any ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.